Welcome to the Speckled Truth Podcast. This is the only show dedicated to the conservation of the trophy trout population from the East Coast to the Gulf Coast. Here, we go below the surface to discuss what happens when science and anglers work together for a cause. Gear up with your host, Captain Chris Bush, a trophy trout purist, leader and educator within the fishing community, as he talks about all things big speckled trout. Get ready for the slimy, salty truth, better known as the speckled truth. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Speckled Truth Podcast. Captain Chris here, joined with me, Angelos Apatos from the Mississippi Gulf Coast Research Lab and have a really unique opportunity to talk to him and get a little bit more perspective, especially with regards to trout tagging and their stocking program and all these different things. And it's funny because we actually have a pretty storied history, which we didn't know. And so our lives have almost come full circle now. But before we get too far into that, uh, into that, Angelos, uh, tell a little bit about yourself to everyone. Sure. Thanks, Chris. First, uh, let me thank Speckle Truth for this opportunity. Um, I'm originally from Greece, uh, if you can't tell. And uh, I came here to South Mississippi in 1999 working on Red Snapper, uh, which was part of uh, a program that the University of Southern Mississippi, the Gulf Coast Research Lab, was involved in at the time. In uh, about 2004, I was here. I was involved in a graduate degree. Um, the uh, state, the Mississippi Department of Marine Resources, felt that the sea trout stocks were um, facing some decline. They initiated the uh, Sea Trout Population Enhancement Cooperative. In 2005, we got hit by Katrina. They asked me to stay a little longer and pursue uh, finishing setting up that program. And by 2006, we started uh, uh, doing a, a stock enhancement program, actually releasing juvenile sea trout into the sound. And uh, I've been involved with the research lab ever since. I pursued, obviously, a graduate degree. And uh, now I'm the hatchery manager for uh, the Thad Cochran Marine Aquaculture Center, which is where all the uh, sea trout population enhancement cooperative uh, work occurs. So coming from Greece, so, I mean, w- when did you actually move over here? And, and did you have kind of an enjoyment of like marine resources or, or fisheries or, or, or things like that? So t- uh, in terms of timeline and kind of your upbringing and how you've actually gotten here a little bit, uh, share a little bit. So, uh, you know, I believe it or not, I came here from Hawaii. I was okay. uh, in an undergraduate program in Hawaii. And I came here because the uh, facility that I was working for in Hawaii at the time was involved in a subcontract with the University of Southern Mississippi, the Gulf Coast Research Lab, to do some reproductive stuff on the Gulf of Mexico Red Snapper. And uh, I got stuck here on September 11th, and that's how I actually stayed here. Um, I had always had an interest in the fisheries when I was a young child in my country. Uh, my parents uh, knew somebody that worked for the local uh, Department of Marine Resources there. And I went on a uh, offshore net pen that was growing sea bass and sea brim. And I think I was like six years old. And at that point, you know how kids want to be astronauts and yeah. pilots? This is what I have always wanted to do ever since then. And I pursued it very aggressively. And this is why I am in the position I'm in today. So it's a passion. It's not just a, a job for me like yourself. Um, getting involved uh, with stock enhancing programs, aquaculture, uh, trying to develop technology to produce more fish, to increase our protein uh, availability mm-hmm. is uh, actually a really big passion of mine. And of course, my other passion that you're aware of, fishing. <laughs> and so that's where kind of we met. And little did we know, so when I lived here in Biloxi, 
I would go wish Wade fish a local wading spot. Very common uh, knowledge, kind of community hole. And so we were wade fishing, one, or I was wade fishing one day, and all of a sudden this guy comes up behind me throwing a top water, heading one knocker, and it gets exploded on behind me. <laughs> and I look, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm joined by another wader, no big deal. And we started talking then, and I knew you had kind of worked for the hatchery. You also worked for Dick Sporting Goods. When uh, so I, I would, when I was going to go buy lures and stuff like that, I'd see you there. And so that was now, I think, like 10 or 12 years ago. And so we're here at the Biloxi Boat Show and we have a, a trout basically on display, a seven pound trout, a 27. It's a super fat fish, um, but it's really through the efforts of Angelos and, and his team that have afforded us the opportunity to go ahead and talk about that, right? And, and, and be able to showcase that fish in the fishery and how the people can get involved with taking care of that fishery. But it's super, I don't know, cool to me that we're sitting here in this room 12 years later, little did we know we're fishing side by side. And that just showcases like how much of a passion we had for trout fishing and how, how that passion has kind of continued to develop. Yeah. And, uh, Chris, I'll, I've told you this in the past. I'll never forget that day. It was just me and you. It was like a, mm -hmm. like an overcast, kind of a cloudy day. You were out there, you were off to my left and uh, I could not believe how many fish you were bringing in on uh, soft plastics. I was mesmerized. I know you, uh, you know, nobody can shy away from top water action because you actually see the fish, but seeing you bring in fish after fish, that was one of those memorable days. I'll never forget that day. And we started talking and we've been friends ever since. We stay in touch. I've learned a great deal from your social media uh, information on soft plastics and you've helped me network with some people that I see every day at some of these shows or they have an interest in the fishery, but I never realized their passion and you helped me connect with a lot of people. So um, I really appreciate that. Yeah, man. And no worries. And so that's what, that's what it's about though, is we do have a small community here, uh, one on the Mississippi Gulf coast, but outside of that, really our trout fishing community across the different estuaries and coasts. And that's, what's been super unique about Speckle Truth is being able to dial in connect with people, talk to them and, and get to know their story. And that's the importance of kind of speckled truth. And then again, here at the Biloxi Boat Show, being able to showcase that fish. So tell us a little bit. So for folks that are going to come in, we're going to give them that story. For folks listen to this podcast, because it's not going to be as time relevant, because we're going to release this afterwards. But if you didn't have a chance to come to the boat show, or you're not in the Biloxi area, tell people a little bit about the fish that's in there. And not only that, about your actual program that you manage and run. So, um, you know, the 27-inch uh, sea trout that we have there is actually uh, one of the fish that was uh, caught by some uh, efforts of uh, recreational anglers uh, during last year's uh, live catch event. Once a year, uh, we have a tournament in Bay St. Louis uh, with uh, the CCA group um, that I'm sure you're familiar with. And uh, to honor... Uh, and uh, a commissioner that passed away, Ernie Zimmerman, who had a passion and helped uh, endorse this program to keep it alive for all these years. Um, we have a live catch tournament in 2018. Uh, it was a cold December day. Uh, there was only about a handful of fish uh, that were over three pounds that were caught. Uh, we retained those fish uh, to cycle them into our stocks, and that's one of those fish. So that fish has been in our systems for about a year now. Um, 
the program is designed to uh, release as many seed charts as we can, as we're funded to release in a uh, calendar year, in using as uh, little resources as possible. We use recirculating aquaculture. And for those that don't know what recirculating aquaculture is, envision a really, really large aquarium with uh, pumps, filtration systems, uh, UV sterilizers to sanitize the water, uh, biological filtration to remove the ammonia. And we raise seed trout uh, from egg all the way to a tag appropriate or release appropriate size. Last year alone, we released a couple of hundred thousand. Uh, that's all we were funded to do. But in total, we released about 1.6 million in Mississippi. Of course, you know, the Texas programs mm -hmm. that release a lot of sea trout that uh, we, you and I have discussed in the past dwarf, you know, this program. Uh, they release, you know, five, six million every year. Um, they have a much larger program. But all in all, uh, because sea trout is such a, a spectacular game fish, in my opinion, um, there's a lot of efforts between Texas, uh, some efforts in Louisiana, not as, not as dedicated, but in Mississippi to enhance the stocks and make sure that not only our children, Chris, but our children's children have the resource available to fish for. Now, Alabama, I mean, I think Patrick Garmerson was kind of mentioning that in his podcast that we did together. And that was uh, Alabama, I think, has is, is started uh, a trout hatchery program or, or a release program. And so are you guys partnering a little bit with them? Yes, we are actually at the Claw Petit facility where they have the earth ponds. Max uh, Westendorf, he's the hatchery manager there um, in the same position that I'm in, in Mississippi, and uh, we're good friends. Um, so Max and I communicated, and there was a lot of uh, technology transfer in terms of uh, maintaining the brood fish in a certain condition, uh, the cycles, the maturation cycles, what we call them, where you get them from spawnable to regress, which is when the ovaries uh, shrink, and then back up to spawnable. And sea trout are very adaptive. They domesticate well, and they spawn volatationally in the tank. That means that all we have to do is adjust the temperature and the artificial lighting in a system, and we could get them to release millions of eggs every time. Uh, we had a spawn this morning from one of our groups, and we've had spawns every other day for the past two months. We don't do anything with those eggs because we can't release them. The water's too cold. But if we wanted to, we could raise them starting today. And that's how we wanted the Alabama group to design their program. We felt that that was the most appropriate approach to give them uh, the uh, most diverse options so they can output as many fingerlings as they need to based on how their fishery is doing. And every so many years, there's an assessment of the fishery. Each state assesses their own individual fisheries and that's where those decisions, how many fish, how frequently, and where to release them come from. So you're, you're telling me a fish spawn today, and I can only think, because my brain is only capable of thinking like that, but we're around a full moon. Do those fish still feel that inside the hatchery? Not necessarily the full moon inside the hatchery. Uh, we feel that the spawning behavior inside the tank is more temperature and uh, photo period, like the amount of daylight related. Um, to give you an example, the tank that we have today is at about maybe 80, 85 degrees, uh, which is about 25 degrees, 26 degrees Celsius. And we get, we have them on a 14-hour daylight, hmm. and they uh, volatationally spawn. We have uh, a few males in a tank and, and uh, more females, and that's an appropriate sex ratio. 
uh, for the tank. And we get about a million and a half to two million eggs every time these fish spawn. These fish are not very big. So, but you're, so you're changing, are you kind of like artificially changing the season with that? And so like, if you're like, I know the it's wintertime, right? It's February. It's like I said, I know it's coming up on a full moon, but the water temp's cold. It's typically not a spawning season right now here in the Mississippi Gulf Coast. But are you guys in, in your program, I mean, y'all can actually change the, and create kind of these artificial seasons like a spring, summer, then fall, winter. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yes. Not only are we changing the seasons aside from what the natural season is, we also condense the seasons. So to give you an example, they will go through fall, winter, spring, and summer when they spawn in 151 days. So we could bring them up to spawning a condition twice in a calendar year. Um, so once we get there, though, when they get to spawning, we let them spawn for two, sometimes three months at a time to make sure that they spawn at a period that we could actually use the spawns. Um, this group of fish, they just fall on that rotation that we have, the annual rotation. So unfortunately, we don't use the spawns that we get this time of the year. But in about a month, we'll probably be sending spawns to a, the state hatchery which is an inland hatchery that does pond culture for these fish. Uh, Max may want a spawn uh, just to try his systems mm -hmm. to see how they can, how that technology works for them that we disclose to them. And then we may need a spawn to get our hands wet, see, make sure the ROI systems are working. So these fish have only seen winter temperatures for 13 days. That's crazy. That really is crazy yeah. that y'all can not necessarily manipulate it, but manipulate kind of the, the growing season. And I'm, I'm a, I would imagine that's to basically make sure that uh, you're utilizing the youth of the fish or, or kind of the, um, uh, I'm lapsing on the word, but nonetheless, kind of using the fish's lifespan and, and kind of fertility, if you will, uh, and maximize that capability in, in a condensed amount of time versus it happen naturally. Well, manipulating is actually the correct term. Okay. So uh, we do manipulate um, the ability of the fish to respond to the stimulus, which is, in this case, the temperature and the amount of daylight that we put in the tank. And, uh, Chris, we do a lot of research there. We've researched on what type of light to use to simulate a more natural light. So we transitioned from, like, a, a compact fluorescent to incandescent. Now we're on a... Uh, more natural spectrum LED light to let the fish to lead the fish to believe that it's like August and it's a bright sunny day and it's about to be dusk and I need to spawn. Uh, you go outside of our tanks, our fish tend to be between three and five pounds right now in our tanks, and you can hear the male sea trout grunting from the outside of the building. It's that oh profound. Gosh. So you know the fish are about to spawn when you actually hear that behavior. And uh, coincidentally, that's the only way that we can differentiate the fish when we collect them or when the anglers collect them. We tell them if you pull up a fish and it grunts and it makes a croaking noise like a croaker, that's a male trout, 100%. Mm -hmm. If you pull it up out of the water and it does not grunt, it doesn't mean it's a female, but it's very likely a female. It may be a male that's just not responding in the way to, you know, flex their abdominal muscles and make that grunting noise. So uh, what I'm capturing, though, is like light 
in the in the light periods are so trout are actually really responsive to light and photo periods and and those types of things and so again I'm, I'm not a smart man but I only think of things typically from an angling perspective and so like how does that necessarily translate to like me as an angler right so like I I, I mean shoot you know I used to night fish a lot when I was here obviously wade fish a lot now in the daytime and stuff like that but are are trout from an angling perspective is that something that's truly and then also too like are there different lures I should throw or, or do they see things that are better at night versus daytime or things that should, you know what I'm saying? So like, uh, again, I'm, I'm sorry. I think of it from like an angling perspective versus like the scientific nature of it. But I, I like to kind of tie the two because it's super intriguing for me to listen to you and talk about them being so light sensitive and how that drives a lot of behaviors. And so how that basically transcends to me as an angler and maybe how I would approach things differently based on light availability. Well, I can tell you this. Um, I know I'm a scientist, but I always look at sea trout. And when I, when I go and I stand over those systems and some of our staff feed those fish, I try to use every advantage I can get. So um, we make very careful observations. And we do notice that when the water is a little bit warmer, the fish do tend to feed more aggressively. So maybe from an angling perspective, uh, presenting a lure at a faster rate, maybe something bigger. Pre-spawn behavior, like most fish, they tend to eat a lot more. We actually, our program actually makes the diet for the fish during the pre-spawn and the spawning seasons uh, very uh, narrow. They like to eat more shrimp when they spawn. They like to eat more high-protein, high-oil type of um, items. We offer less cigar minnows, hardly any squid, for example, and a lot of shrimp when they get to pre-spawn and spawning temperatures. When they get to post-spawning temperatures, when we want them to regress, they'll eat anything in sight. So we try to give them a more diverse diet where we mix uh, the squid, the shrimp, and the cigar minnows or herring or smelt at equal proportions, and they eat very aggressively. When we go to winter temperatures, they tend to slow down. They don't come to the surface as much. They're more down towards the bottom. So we have to feed them a little slower. So there's definitely a change in behavior of the fish. Now, in recent years, the Gulf Coast Research Lab was also involved in some studies that examine night behavior of juvenile and adult sea trout. And they got some really, really cool videos that I'm going to have to forward to you so the angling community can see how aggressive these fish are at nighttime. We feel that the eyes are sensitive to light. When the light is really intense, like if you go when the lights come on and we try to get the lights in our tanks slowly up, the fish will come to the surface just to feed very quickly, very aggressively if the water's warm. And then they'll go down and they'll hang out in that mid-water. Now, our tanks are very, very clear. So we don't have that stained water in the sound and in areas that we fish when the bloom sets in and we have a really, really healthy bloom and the water is very stained, those fish may be able to be closer to the surface where their trip to hit a surface plug might not be as much, even in five, six foot of water as it is in our tanks. Yeah. Cause they're, so they're so elevated, right? I mean, and that's really, this is enlightening and, and, and it's enlightening because some of the citation data has kind of notionally given some of that in terms of particularly 
a lore type by season. And so we see in the citation data is actually a lot of fish are, it's particularly in Texas. And that could be, so it could be two things. So a lot of the fish are caught in the wintertime on the Texas coast via fat boy, a quirky fat boy. And it doesn't surprise me. It's a, it's a Texas bait, man, tried and true. Every angler that fishes in a Lone Star State has that puppy in its box. And so typically it's on the ends of a lot of rods. On the same token is, though, we also see a lot of top water that's caught in the wintertime, uh, soft NXLs, kind of bigger plugs in general. And so that could be the two things. One, uh, anglers really like to throw them. Or two, we're really seeing a shift in diet of those big fish from something smaller to now something larger like a corky fat boy or a, or a big like jerk bait or, or a top water plug, a super spook and stuff like that. And the other telling component to that is soft plastics across each of the seasons on the Texas coast are pretty even, but you do see a, you kind of see a little well in the winter time. And so that could go back to, they don't necessarily want the action. They want one, the availability, but when they eat, they want to eat something with high protein, a lot, a lot bigger, larger, and then, yeah, just consume a much larger meal at that time. That's correct. So, and here's how you can tell, you know, that's why I'll never forget that day that you and I met. It was, again, like a fall day, and I went out there with a the topwater, and if you remember, I had like a few fish that might have been, yeah. you know, about the same size, but you had way more fish. You completely outfished me. And uh, I don't know how to fish the soft plastics very effectively because I go to my true and proven topwater plugs. Uh, I've done crazy things to my topwater plugs. I've painted them black and I'm out there in the middle of the night and I'm throwing a black plug. I don't even know where that thing lands. I can guesstimate. But when you move that plug and at nighttime, uh, everything is more quiet. You can hear that plug all the way out there. You hear a fish come up and pop it and then... You don't know if that fish is swimming towards you, away from you. You can't see your plug. And then all of a sudden, the rod's about to come out of your hand. Mm -hmm. uh, I would much rather, if I knew how to fish a soft plastic, I feel like I would have had more fish at nighttime uh, in less time like you did on that day. And that's kind of where these fish are. I hear stories of people uh, in on the Mississippi coast that will hit a soft plastic, let it rest on the bottom for literally like several seconds at a time. And it's a very big transition for an angler to be able to adapt to that situation and throw something out there and have the patience to leave it down there because the water is 45, 50 degrees and that fish is not going to be real quick to come to that bait. They can see it. We're not sure if sea trout see color, but they definitely respond to motion like most fish do. So if a, if a bait is just sitting down there on the bottom and it's got a nice paddle tail, uh, and it moves a little bit of water, the trout, are, we know, are ambush predators. And you know how we know that? Remember when I told you about the male-to-female ratio, but also the male-to-female size mm -hmm. ratio? If a sea trout sees something that's maybe as little as 20% smaller than it, it will probably eat it. That's it why try. That's why you catch, and I've seen pictures that you post where you see a sea trout and there's a tail of a fish, hanging out of its mouth. They're voracious eaters. They're very aggressive. They're very fast. It looks like they're insatiable. They do get to a satiation point, but like most aggressive fish do, when they see something fresher in the water, they'll regurgitate what they've just consumed and pick something fresher. And we see that 
in our tanks where they'll spit out a piece to pick out a fresher piece of something they prefer over something else. So is that where like slicks come from? Perhaps, but also the fact that some of the smaller sea trout do tend to school up. So they'll attack a bait of, say, pogies, uh, Menhaden, and they'll eat a few of them, and they're very oily. When they eat a few, they'll miss a few, and those ones that they miss are the ones that actually might put the oil slick. You see a really big oil slick out there, like you and I discussed mm. in the past, you're targeting that oil slick. You're sitting out there weight fishing. You don't have an opportunity to move around a lot. You see that oil slick drifting with the tide. You know those fish are following that slick. And that's what they do in our tanks. Every time we put a current, a lot of the fish that we have that are in the smaller size class, they'll just drift with the water. Even though they can swim into it, they'll drift with it. And mm -hmm. I feel that that's something that they do following bait. Tides will move bait around. Yeah, because, I mean, that's a thing for us, though, is like, you'll, especially on the Texas coast here even as well, but more so there is you'll see like these little dinner plates pop up in, in the water column or on the surface of the water. You know it's a it's a fresh kill that that fish just ate could have been a big mullet could have been a big pogey actually I caught one this year I harvested a few trout one of the trout I harvested was like a twenty two inch and it literally had a freaking pogey the size of my palm I mean it was huge and it was still eating I mean it had a huge belly rock solid and it it had a lot of mass on the shoulders and so um, but it's amazing that I didn't know that like they'll actually regurgitate a fresh kill that they eat. That's why you see them all tail. And then they want to eat something a little bit more fresher. But one of the things you touched on though, was we always hear low and slow, low and slow, da, da, da. In, in, in some instances that kind of makes sense talking to Chaz champagne, you know, jig fishing, the, the, the bridge pylons, 15 foot, 12 to 15 foot of water. Yeah. You got to fish slower. Right. But on a Texas coast, in terms of the actual depth of the, of the system isn't very deep. And so, a lot of people like, oh, you got to slow your corky presentation down. Well, I I don't. I mean, I fish my corkies and my fat boys really fast. I mean, I'm throwing a lot of like, again, kind of twitch baits and jerk baits that have a lot of action and I will rest them. But for the most part, when they hit them, I mean, they powder them. And so I'm, I'm working kind of fast in these baits kind of fast, not necessarily just really slow and methodical. And so I, there, it seems to be there's a little bit of a misnomer that you got to just slow everything down in the wintertime and these fish the only way you can catch them is fishing low and slow when quite the opposite i like to fish them fast and but you're kind of saying that those fish do slow down in terms of kind of hugging a bottom and things like that which kind of makes sense but uh i don't know if what your thoughts are on that but i don't know if it's estuary dependent or whatever but it just seems like working a bait faster in the wintertime uh, actually yields a, a little bit bigger bites and and, and more bites Actually, you know, it is estuary dependent. So I promise you that uh, if you take the best angler from the Mississippi coast and you put him in the environment that uh, you're accustomed to fishing, uh, they're going to have a hard time uh, adjust adjusting first. But there's a learning curve there. They're going to have to learn how those fish react, what baits to throw, how to present. And when you're in an area that's really, really uh, big and the bait might be more spread around, those fish may be actively chasing things even in the wintertime to sustain themselves and to keep themselves alive. Here in Mississippi, we've noticed like, you know, in the dead middle of the winter, people would trawl, slow trawl, hard baits behind uh, the skiffs in Fort Bayou and they'll run over deep holes. They might pass over that hole five or six times 
And then all of a sudden, they'll have three rods that are all bowed up, mm. all bent with fish on them. Those fish are slow. We do get colder temperatures here. And the other thing that makes, that plays a difference is how the bait moves around over those holes. If those fish, are the, meta the metabolic rates because of the low temperatures are slower, they're not, they're not going to need to eat as much. That's why they pack on a lot of food and a lot of fat during the fall months here. So in the wintertime, when you do catch a trout, you tend, when you cut it, you know there's a lot of fat build around what we call the visceral cavity, which is the gut area. Mm -hmm. In the summertime, right before they start spawning, they convert a lot of that fat into energy for them to help them mature reproductively. So when they consume all that fat and they come out of winter, there's not a lot of fat to consume to begin with, the bait starts moving around and they start feeding more aggressively. By the summertime, you're catching schooling trout. Those are the trout, potentially males or maybe smaller females, that will school up and they'll ball up around balls of bait, whether it's shrimp, whether it's small fingerling mullet, whether it's, you know, those fish. Everything spawns in the spring and summer here. Peak spawning for sea trout, believe it or not, in Mississippi is the late July hmm. to August months. We did see spawning activity um, in like when I catch sea trout and I'm a scientist and I see a sea trout that still has mature ovaries or egg sacs in late September, I'll take a sample of that and I'll look at it under the scope because that'll determine how I'm going to fish for them after that. If they're still actively spawning, they feed on different stuff. They'll chase the high protein, high oil type of stuff. So I may throw a shrimp on the bottom and stick with that and you know just kind of trust my instinct more than I trust my habit of just inadvertently throwing a top water just because yeah. that's what I'm used to. Yeah, yeah. And that's what separates the pros from the Joes, I think. The ability to understand some of these things and adapt your fishing technique to yield either better quality fish if you're targeting the larger fish or if you're targeting the more abundance, the schooling fish, you change to something different. I'd like to take a small break to sincerely thank our podcast sponsors. As you know, we're a brand about sharing the passion and pursuit of trophy speckled trout, as well as our conservation. Fortunately for us, Mirror Lore, Texas Custom Lures, and the original Custom Corky support that same passion, which is evident through the support of this podcast. Simply put, without these brands, none of this would be possible. And we're incredibly appreciative, and we hope you are too. Now, let's get back to the discussion. So listening to you and knowing you and stuff like that, knowing you're a scientist, but also an angler makes this even greater because like, I don't know, I'm like you, if I was, if I had the background that you did, I would look everything through. It seems like the angling lens as well. And that's really kind of tough to delineate. Uh, but I wanted to also say that just listening to you, right, from an angling perspective and also a scientist, like this is, dude, you're running the trout hatchery. So not only from an angler, but also from a scientist. So you really have a true understanding of one as a fish from an angling perspective and then as a scientist. But outside of that, you're managing it. And then also for the anglers on the Mississippi Gulf Coast or, or in the fishery, they can get involved and, and understand more because you guys are open to the public, right? For tours and, and things like that. They can, they can actually donate fish like the one that's in the tank. 
uh, to actually bring into the actual hatchery itself and, and reproduce that or, yeah, and have that fish reproduce and stuff like that. So, I mean, tell a little bit more about like from an angler perspective, how they can help you from a scientist perspective uh, and get more involved in kind of taking care of their fishery. So from the uh, angling perspective, you know, every time we're out on the water, if we do a release, uh, a lot of people stop by and they ask what we're doing. Uh, we try to uh, focus our efforts in first educating the general public about why we are doing what we're doing. Uh, there's not only a conservation component to what we're doing, but there's also a promotion of aquaculture as not only a science, but as a business. So you're familiar, um, Mississippi has a commercial trout harvest season. Um, it would be great if we can put a few people in the business of growing fish, then the fishery wouldn't have to incur so much pressure from the commercial harvesting efforts. But the fact that we do have a commercial season for sea trout is great because some of those people, they've, you know, second, third, fourth generation, hopefully, um, you know, commercial anglers. Now, we involve the public because we have a very finite group of scientists there that have to do so many things on any given day. So as much as we all like to be on the water, and we have, of course, uh, boats that allow us to be on the water and do the collection, we have the appropriate permits, we just physically can't be at two places at the same time. So we engage the recreational anglers uh, through um, you guys, you know, everything that you guys do, everything that CCA does to help us collect some of our live fish. We are set up in a manner that we can receive fish. We like to do things in a more organized fashion where somebody like yourself will grab five, six, ten of your best friends and we'll have an organized uh, kind of like small tournament uh, we can get a couple of the big stores here, franchise stores like Dick's Sporting Goods, like Academy, to donate a few goodies. We involve CCA. They hold an organized event, and it's called a live catch event. There are, uh, you know, we set the, um, I guess, the rules about what fish we'd like to take, and then we bring all the fish in. We're set up to do quarantine, so fish can come directly from the wild to the campus, and they go through a quarantine period of about a month where we quote-unquote, domesticate them. And that process involves getting them to stop chasing each other like they do in the wild mm -hmm. and getting them to eat what we want them to eat so we can help them adapt to the new systems they're going to be in. And then we like to cycle our stocks at a 25% per year to maintain the genetic diversity of our stocks. So when we release fish, we're not impacting the genetic stocks that we feel are currently present. We don't want to do harm. We want to do good. And that's what the objectives of this program are. So we get the anglers involved at multiple levels, whether it's helping us with a release, helping us with maybe collecting some data post-release. That's a very uh, expensive process for us, and it's at this point cost prohibitive. So we rely on the anglers if they catch a fish that they feel might be a tagged fish or they want to see if they're catching any tagged fish in an area just because we released there. We can use genetics now, so we only need a fin clip from them, and they get to hold the rest of the fish. So if people actually go fishing that day without an organized event, I mean, they can actually turn in a fish to the fishery, or uh, like, how does that look? So if they have like a live well system in their boat, and they go out and catch a few fish and put them in there, and they want to actually bring them to you, they can pull up to the Gulf Coast Research Lab, donate those fish, or are there are other precautions that they need to do 
to make sure that that fish is is as healthy as possible. Yeah. So um, when an angler usually goes out, they'll call my office or they'll call somebody, one of our staff members, and we give them not only um, information on what to do, how to handle the fish so it's good and healthy before it comes there, but also it makes us aware that we have one or two or three recreational anglers out there that potentially may be coming back with live fish. And that helps us set up. It gives them guidance on how to handle the fish to make sure that no eff- nobody's efforts go to waste. And then it maximizes the survival of the fish post-capture and through the quarantine process, which increases the chances of that fish actually being part of our uh, brood stock. If we end up not using that fish for some reason, we still hold on to the fish and uh, we entertain putting some of those larger fish that we have back into the wild. But we like to hold on to them as long as possible because, you know, fishing is still fishing. For us, we call it collecting because it's under a permit, but for the recreational anglers, it's fishing. And if there was a guarantee uh, that you wake up in the morning and you look at your phone and you look at the weather and there was some kind of message that came up and they said, I guarantee you, you're going to catch fish today. You let me know when you see that message, Chris. I'll stop working. <laughs> so but one of the the main cornerstones of Speckle Truth, though, is conservation. And, and obviously you do that. And so we promote a take what you need, release the rest mentality. It's not just pro catch and release everything. But we do harp more on obviously people giving back to the resource and releasing fish and being more mindful of what they harvest. Um, and so there's just this big emphasis, uh, I think in general, and we're seeing maybe a little bit of a paradigm shift of people releasing more fish because it does feel good. I mean, it, it truly does. But um, I want to ask you though, I mean, for releasing those big fish, is that, does that truly help a resource? So um, it does. And actually, you know, a lot of people come by and, you know, I'm sure we're going to see them all this weekend and they're going to be asking us, hey, what can I do to help, um, you know, the fishery? And my word of advice to everybody out there that's fishing for any fish, not just sea trout, but let's just use sea trout here as a species is, you know, put some back. You don't have to keep everything, you know, just because the limit is 10 or 15 or 20 or whatever. You don't have to keep that many fish. Yeah, a lot of us like to brag about how many fish we catch. But, you know, now with technology, you can take a picture of a fish. It doesn't uh, prove that you caught it then. It doesn't disprove it. And then put some back. There is a way that you have to release the fish to ensure that it survives. So if you intend to capture a fish and you have enough fish on your stringer or enough fish in the box and it's a big fish and you feel like that fish, you want to put it back, handle it with care. Um, Fish are sensitive. The bigger they are, the more sensitive they are because when you lift them out of the water, you lift weight of the fish that the fish may physiologically not be able to handle. So you have to handle those fish with, you know, care when you lift them out of the water for a picture, to dehook them, to do whatever. When you release them, you got to allow time for the fish to adjust again and get over the stress. A lot of fish produce cortisol, which is a a stress hormone. And in trout, it makes the trout go belly up. It inflates the swim bladder, or if it's a male, uh, it uh, contracts the drumming muscles, and they stay upside down. In our experience, when a fish 
builds up enough cortisol that it's alive and it's upside down in our systems, it never recovers back. So we have to pull that fish out of our systems. So put some back. If you're going to handle them, handle them with care. Science says that the smaller fish, like the 15, 16, 17, 18, maybe 20-inch trout, contribute more to the fishery spawning-wise than the really big fish. And we see that in our systems also. But from a genetic perspective, though, I mean, capturing those genetics of those really large fish, let's say those 30-inch fish, if we have a fish that's a 30-inch plus and we kept we catch it, obviously knowing that fish is somewhat of a genetic freak or 28, 29-inch fish, I mean, those fish have grown over the course of time to get to that size and, and kind of eluded a lot of predatory things. And, and so... From a fishery, though, releasing the does releasing the big ones contribute more to the actual overall uh, number of eggs into the fishery, or is it more genetics that uh, you're kind of capturing by releasing those larger fish? Those larger fish don't spawn in our systems. They don't spawn as often. When they do spawn, they release more eggs. Um, those larger fish, though, the fact that they do spawn uh, less frequently, I feel that you're not necessarily contributing to the fishery by releasing those much larger fish. If you allow the fishery to build itself from the ground up and you allow a lot of the 14, 15, 16, 17 inch fish to recruit into the fishery in appropriate numbers and you maintain, uh, this a lot of fisheries formulas like a 20% spawning potential. So 20% of your stock out there are females that are able to spawn, you actually contribute more to the fishery that way than you do by releasing all the big ones and keeping all the small ones. Releasing a more diverse group of sea trout might be more beneficial than just releasing the big ones. That is interesting because you all, I've seen it a lot. I, again, I harvest kind of what is available. So like the limit in Texas is five depending on my family's needs or whatever it is, uh, we'll keep like three, right? I mean, we're not going to go through more fish. And so on a trip, I'll typically keep three if they want them, if at all, right? But I, I generally harvest whatever, right? So 22, obviously within the limit, but like 18 to 22 inches is really optimal because we're getting a really good quality filet uh, on the fish. But outside of that, it, it's enough to kind of sustain our family. Uh, but on the same token as I've also seen charters, and not to call those guys out. I've also, and I say that because I was this person. So it's like me kind of doing self-reflection is that is, yeah, I'm going to catch and keep all these fish from 12 to 15 inches. But if I catch a 20 inch fish, I'm releasing that. Well, it sounds like the fishery is better suited by keeping 10 fish or, or 15 fish from 12 to 20 inches versus 25, 12 to 14 inch fit, like let's say from Louisiana, right? Uh, and so keeping like a smaller fish in a higher number and a higher volume. So is, is that about kind of what you're getting at? And so don't just release the bigger fish, release the diversity and size of fish and maybe basically keep and harvest less numbers. That's actually more beneficial to a resource than just releasing the big ones. Is that kind of what I heard? Yes, and you know, when fisheries managers evaluate what the minimum size is, they look at a lot of factors. They look at what the reproductive size is for the species that they're trying to manage. So in our case, uh, sea trout, 
um, they'll start, the males will start uh, showing signs of reproductive ability when they get to be about nine or 10 inches, right? And then the females, even though they show signs of reproductive ability at about the same size, um, you know, think of it as a um, smaller fish with a smaller ovary, even if they produce eggs, no matter how frequently they produce them, they cannot compete with a fish twice as big as they are, right? So in our systems, and we've seen these over the past, you know, several years that we have six tanks spawning, the tanks with the larger fish look more spectacular because who doesn't want to go up to a tank with clear water and see a 28, 29 inch fish? We only receive maybe five, six million eggs from those fish in a month. The tanks with the 18, 19 inch fish will receive almost twice, if not three times as many eggs. The spawns themselves may not be as big, one spawn of two million eggs versus every spawn 200,000 eggs, but we receive so many of those spawns that if this were the environment and those fish were in the natural environment, the smaller fish will spawn more frequently, therefore contribute more. So the 15-inch size limit, for example, for Mississippi is a more appropriate size range, I feel, because of everything that I've seen, not only from raising sea trout in a controlled environment, but also angling. When we drop down to like the 14 inches or the, even the 13 inches, I think that impacted the fishery in a negative way where we were taking the fish that we were supposed to be allowing them to recruit and spawn for at least a year, maybe two years before we remove them from the fishery. And I feel that with other factors that may have caused a decline in the fishery. When you were here, when we met about 10 years ago, we were catching really big fish and you were bringing in pound and a half, two pound fish there consistently. If we go to the same spot today, it would be challenging to do the same thing that we did that year that you were here, that we were fishing that same spot. So there's a lot of factors that go into a management of a fishery, um, what the minimum size are, if there's going to be seasons, closures, openings, and what to take and what to keep versus what to put back. And I think that's important, right? Because if, again, if you're a regular guy going to fish, I'm not saying, you know, don't keep, keep basically self-disciplined conservation, keep what you need, release the rest. And, and I think that's a, a pretty sound and a pretty common sense management practice personally that will sustain a resource long-term. And we all, I mean, I do, I see a lot of people and that's okay, but they, they basically keep uh, a limit of fish, whether they need them or not, but they'll release all the big ones because, it, again, it kind of feels good, but on the same token is they may feel like it's helping the resource, but in fact, it may actually be harming the resource by keeping a solid limit of fish and releasing all those big fish versus actually just keeping less fish in general and releasing more. So that's that's a pretty interesting concept. Now, one of the things that you did mention, because I've been more mindful of it this year is fish care and fish and making sure that those bigger fish that I can, and, and look, I'm still going to release big fish I, mm-hmm. unless the fish is gut hooked and it's bleeding and all this stuff. It, it's not a feel good moment, for, although it is, I don't release them just for a feel good moment. Like if the fish is in good health, I'm going to release the fish. If the fish is not in good health, I'm going to harvest the fish whether it's a 28 or 29 or my biggest fish ever. So pot calling kettle black, my biggest fish 
pound wise was 30 and a half and it was 11 pound fish at a 17 and a quarter inch girth. turns out I had a 15 inch trout in its gut, but I had to harvest that fish, man. I tried for the longest time, the reviver and she kept going belly up. And so I was like, well, I'm not going to just let her float. Right. And, and I took her home. And although I felt terrible for that, um, I did harvest the fish, but anyway, I say all that because just be mindful in terms of our angling perspective, just have some self-discipline, take what you need, release the rest. It's a sound management practice from you, but all right, fish care. So I'm guilty of it. A lot of anglers are guilty of it, especially when you got a big fish in a line, grabbing them with a boga and then picking them up out of the water. And then that fish is now kind of slashing around on a end of a boga grip out of the water, basically straight up and down, almost vertical. That can't be the best thing in terms of health of the fish for a release. So talk me through what are some things that anglers can do to help, um, and give the best odds for that fish to be released. Now I started using a net, you know, I don't have all these scientific things. I'm a weight fisherman. So I like to minimize, minimize my gear and stuff like that. But as a dude with minimal gear with a bow grip and a net, I mean, taught me through some of those things that I can do better to properly release that fish. So first let's start with, uh, the time that the fish is at the end of the line fighting. Um, that's significant. So if you feel like you got enough fish on the stringer, but you still want to stay out there and fish, it's important to be cognizant of the fact that the longer that fish stays at the end of the line, the more stressed it'll be, the more tired it'll be, and that changes the recovery time for that fish. When we bring the fish in, I, you know, when I go out and I uh, wade fish and I'm not fishing for any scientific reason, I don't carry anything with me that has anything to do with science. I do exactly what you do. I carry my net. I carry my tackle box, I carry a rod, an extra rod, um, because I've learned the hard way to carry an extra rod. <laughs> and it's a long ways out there uh, to walk uh, back to your car and back out there in the middle of a bite. So when I bring a fish in that I know I'm going to release, I try to keep it in the water as much as possible. So I put the net underneath the fish. Um, I tr when, you, when the fish is in the net, even if it reacts in a way that it's going to slosh, and you know, you're not letting it dangle off of any holder. You're not squeezing the fish to get the hook out. And I try to use pliers. Um, you know, I mostly fish top water, so my top water plugs actually have a hard time keeping them on the fish than, you know, off the fish. So it's easy for me to just reach out there with my needle nose pliers and I grab the hook where it's hooked and I twist it off the fish. I let the fish recover a little bit in the net and then I hold the mouth in the direction of the water movement so water can move through the mouth and out through the gills. It helps the fish recover because that's how they exchange oxygen through the gills. They open the mouth, they, they gulp a whole bunch of water, they close the mouth, and they force water out of the gills. When that water moves over the gill filaments, it exchanges carbon dioxide for oxygen in the water, and it helps the fish recover. Trust me, when that fish is ready to go, it'll leave the net faster than you can say, leave the net. And that fish will be fine. It swam, it darted out of the net. It might not swim very fast, you know, a few feet away from you, but it will recover faster than a fish that you have to handle, let it dangle uh, from any device that you're holding, have to squeeze the fish by the gills or by the abdomen and pull hooks out. If it's got hooked and you're gonna release the fish, sacrifice the lure. You cut the line, most hooks will rust off the fish and it'll actually fall out of the fish's mouth. 
I've caught many a fish that have hooks that pass right through them, and they're in their gut. When we go and we assess if we have any fish, when we used to do physical tagging instead of the genetic tagging that we do now, we have a metal detector like a wand. I've wanded fish that I feel, oh, wow, a tagged fish, and it's 15 inches. And I take it to the lab, and you isolate the area that you feel there's a tag, and there's no tag in that area. And then I wand the fish by the abdomen, and I open the fish up, and there's a hook that the fish is passing through its system. So even if it's gut hooked and you know you're going to release that fish, if you cut your line and part ways with the lure, I know it's hard, but you have to have that discipline mm. to do that if you're going to release that fish, independent of how big it is, tie another lure, keep fishing, catch the next fish. And this is enlightening because, uh, again, uh, super guilty of it, but getting them on a bugger grip, want to catch a weight, right? So you're holding that fish mm -hmm. straight up and down, trying to look at the weight. Again, that probably not being the best thing for the fish, but will that alone kill the fish or does it have to be like a certain duration of time? So if I'm just checking a weight, is that enough damage to kill that fish? Or if like, I'm just checking a weight, just make sure you get it back basically horizontal. So instead of putting the fish directly on the grip to get a weight, if you leave the fish in your net and you grip the net and pull the net out of the water, you still get an approximate weight, a wet weight, and then you ungrip the net from your grip and let the fish go, and that's much safer, and uh, it allows the fish to recover. Because to get a weight, you're holding it out of the water for a few seconds, sometimes 10, sometimes 15 seconds. The fish will be fine as long as it's not dangling and injuring itself trying to get off the grip. This is, okay, so I really have some work to do uh, specifically with regards to, again, kind of fish care and and thinking about in terms of landing a fish. I, typically, if I ha have a big fish, I'll hold that boga grip, support her by the belly, take that picture. I do know some of those extremely fat fish, just to kind of take a picture to enunciate the belly and really show and kind of appreciate the size of the daggum fish and how big and fat and round it is. And I'm guilty of it, man, just holding it straight up and down. And I, I gotta be honest. I mean, I didn't realize that there's, you know, a, a lot of harm that can basically happen to that fish just by doing that. Now, another thing that I do and talk to me, and I think a lot of people do, but when they're releasing that fish, if they don't have a net, let's say, cause I didn't for the longest time, or if I take them out of the net and I'm unhooking the fish, um, I'll hold them by the tail and I'll, I'll hold them right basically by the caudal fin, right, right around that tail. It's kind of a nice firm area. It's a great grip because you actually have the tail in your hand. Um, and then that fish, I'll just kind of let it rest, kind of wiggle the tail a little bit. And then ultimately that fish will take off or it'll kind of cruise off. I like to, yeah, see that strong kick. Um, but again, if I just have it there and that fish does like one kick and she's belly up, I'm, I'm pretty much harvesting that fish. Um, but just by holding that tail, does that do a tremendous amount of harm to that fish? If you hold it by the tail for a brief moment, just to help with the dehooking process, um, no matter what injury the fish will sustain, holding it by the tail, if it goes back into the environment uh, and it's healthy, strong to swim away, it'll recover fairly quickly. Uh, we know from, again, observing the fish when we collect them, um, Sometimes, you know, they'll have hand marks on them when you have to grip them or when we catch them by the tail to get the hooks off and we still retain them. And we're holding those fish with great reservation. But on a day that we have to collect and there's not 
a lot of activity and we have to go back with something, we'll hold on to those fish. Within three days, you can't tell that the fish has been handled. But um, I try to uh, tell people all the time, avoid touching the cuttlefin, the tail, directly. Uh, the tail for sea trout is a little sensitive. Uh, if you rub off the slime coat off of that tail and it's in the environment and you have a bacterial load, uh, it'll get a secondary infection. And sometimes that impacts the fish trying to fight an infection and it makes it weaker in the long run and more susceptible to predation. You know, uh, a lot of other things, including other larger sea trout, will chase down and, and consume a smaller sea trout that's swimming around weaker. Um, you know, that fish may have not been preyed upon if we didn't make it weaker by our actions. I like to hold the fish from the gut area underneath and lift it out of the water a little bit. And if the tail is going to kick, I let the tail kick and I de-hook it that way. It works for me, but, you know, it works differently for different anglers. I also have an advantage. I have a lot of experience handling fish in a different setting, like in a tank where we have to sample that fish or move it from tank to tank, and it has to be basically intact. You saw what we did yesterday with that big fish. So just to let uh, the audience know, yesterday we brought the fish. It was in a 150-quart cooler. Um, there wasn't a lot of water in there. We tried to lift it out. The fish started behaving like it's going to kick. We put it back. And at that point, uh, we had to get creative. And the most creative thing that we could come up with was a black plastic bag. Uh, the plastic bag, because it was black, it blocked the fish from being able to see sudden movements that we may be doing. We put the bag in front of the fish. We slid that fish right into the black plastic bag with even a little bit of water. We moved it into the aquarium that was in a different location. That fish didn't kick, didn't respond, and it went into the water intact. That's why that fish looks the way it does today. It's because we handled it with great care yesterday. And that's, this is all eye-opening for me because, I mean, I've, I, I try to wet my hands. You hear like some simple things like wetting your hands. Cause I, and I try to, like when I would grab them and not use a net, I try to grab them right behind the head. That's where you can get like a really good stronghold. But again, really putting a lot of great compression. That's why I started using a net is now I can net that fish and not like use grip strength right behind the fish's head and put a, a ton of stress on its gills or right around its like abdomen and stuff like that. So I've tried to just take that extra precaution of using a net, but I still want to take that fish out. I grab them right behind the head, um, take out, you know, whatever lure that I'm using and then, uh, hold them by the tail and then release a fish. It sounds like I, I'm kind of doing things a little wrong. And, 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 uh, I would venture to say that a lot of the folks in the angling community are doing that. So, you know, try to do what you can to, to basically take care of the fish, especially if you want to release it you know, in terms of your angling method, just be the more, the biggest thing. And I, I guess takeaway from this is just, um, understand, you know, being more educated about the fish sensitivity of it. If, especially if you want to release that, cause we do, we want to encourage folks to release fish and, and take care of their resource. And so that's super eye opening. All right. So I got one last question and I hope you, uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of anxious to kind of hear your your response here. And so last year, uh, we understood, I think you guys had big Bertha. And so do you guys, or, or what is the biggest trout in your hatchery? And if I remember right, 
it was one that y'all had that was close to 16 pounds. That's correct. So we did have a trout uh, maybe 18 months ago that we uh, pulled out of our systems um, that, um, yes, we refer to it as Big Bertha. Uh, she was uh, about a little over 16 pounds. She was a very healthy fish. Unfortunately, uh, that fish did not contribute to the spawning of that tank. And uh, when you have a fish that big, that's pushing 32 plus inches um, with a girth that looks more like a, a redfish than a, than a sea trout, uh, we have problems in that tank. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, um, as upset as we all were, we had that fish for about four years. It came in at a little over five pounds uh, from uh, Davis Bayou, the bayou that was close to um, uh, where the research lab is. But uh, we had to pull it out of our systems to make room for the younger, more productive uh, fish. Um, she was a little over 16 pounds. But, Chris, I told you yesterday, I've seen bigger than that. Um, oh sea Center, Texas, uh, which is funded by Texas Parks and Wildlife in uh, right outside of Houston. Uh, David Abrego uh, was the hatching manager when I went to visit over there. He had 20 pounders. That would produce like, you know, not very frequently, but, you know, at least once a month or twice a month, about two million eggs, three million eggs. Um, the Sea Center facility is a great facility. Uh, we work with them very closely. We still do. We exchange a lot of information, especially if they're starting to work on a new species. But they did a lot of research on spotted sea trout and especially the pond culture for spotted sea trout. And they are the facility that outputs five, six million trout a year. Uh, or a season for releases. So they have a fantastic program. But when you do see a 20-pound fish, I wouldn't advise anybody, if they catch a 20-pound sea trout, to put it back. Um, just call me. <laughs> yeah. That's cr First off, if you catch a 20-pound trout, you have just literally won the angling lottery, uh, especially in the inshore community. Oh, my God. You would be a – right? Because the, the world record seventeen seven. So you've now just – obliterated the world record uh how big was that fish first off and then secondly like i would imagine like mid-30s close to 40 i don't know 40 inches and then what is typically like a life expectancy of like let's say like a 30 inch fish or a fish that like how long does it take a fish to kind of get to that that length well uh fish fish grow very quickly when they're young in our systems the sea trout when they're very young they'll put on about 25 percent of their body weight daily when they're like a few days old and as they get older that number decreases and decreases we also feed them at a you know 10 percent body weight per day and we slowly decline that feeding to about five percent then down to three percent we feed our broodfish three percent of their body weight every other day and they still put on about 25 maybe 30 percent growth every year from the day they were caught and we have all that information we have a controlled environment. So nothing chases the sea trout in our environment other than their, you know, other sea yeah. trout that are in there. So they have no predators and we feed them. And their only responsibility in that system is to exist and spawn. And that's it. In the wild, trout, it would be, I would be very surprised if anybody ever comes up with a 20-pound sea trout from the wild. You know, they have a lot of predators, including other sea trout. But... Um, they tend to live a little more than 10 years. So a young sea trout in the wild, the life expectancy is a little more than 10 years. And it would reach maybe 12, maybe 13, 14 pounds, especially in your neck of the woods in yeah. Texas. 
Um, in Mississippi, I think the largest trout caught here is about 10 pounds. So at the Biloxi Boat Show, you're going to have a lot of people that will look at that trout and their jaw will drop because it's been a while since they've seen that trout. And until you let them know, hey, this trout came from a controlled environment, uh, they should they shouldn't assume that you know that fish came from the wild. But it would be highly unlikely that the fish in the wild would be that girthy and that big and that heavy um, at this age. This is maybe a five, maybe six year old fish. Um, I feel that in Mississippi waters, a fish in the wild of that age would be uh, that long, probably, but a lot slimmer. That's great. Well, so the first boat show we did, though, we actually, so that was one of our big things was we wanted to have big fish, right? And so we went and caught three five-pounders because we're anglers. We're trying to catch big trout. And so, again, if we're going to have live trout at a boat show, we're damn it, we're going to catch them. But, you know, over the course of, of time, in the last two years more specifically, we feel like obviously partnering with you guys there's a better story to tell there. And it also, and again, it gives people a greater understanding and maybe educating them that, Hey, this, this program exists that you can contribute to. And that's what we feel is a little bit more, uh, a better story here, particularly at the boat show. So yeah, of course we would want to have a seven pound fish that we caught. And we've in a first boat show, we had three, five pounders that we caught to show that we could do it. But Really, when it's when it's all said and done, it's better suited for you guys to be in a booth with us, collaborate, educate people, again, showcase a large fish for the area, and people will be like, oh my gosh. And so we've, we've heard it, you know, just in setting up the fish. Some people come by, take a look at, oh my God, that trout's huge. Some people pass by and it's like, oh, it's a two pound fish. <laughs> like, dude, have you really looked at this thing? Uh, and then others come by and man, that looked really good in a dinner plate. And then others were like, man, it's just a beautiful fish. So the myriad of reactions we get here is just, that's, what's really cool about it. And so thank you, Angelos and team for supporting us at the boat show and being a part of our community. And then also to doing what you do in our community to make sure that we have a fishery for years to come. And uh, thank you because, uh, you know, uh, you say we've contributed that fish from the Gulf Coast Research Lab, but, uh, you know, reminding everybody that was a fish that was caught by a recreational angler, uh, an angler that had conservation in mind, that was motivated to uh, assist with our efforts and had a genuine care for the future of this great fishery uh, in this state. Um, That angler may have uh, heard something that you said. You might know that angler, maybe, maybe not. But um, again, this is a great program for the university and the Gulf Coast Research Lab. Um, it's been an ongoing program since 2004. We're now in 2020, and there's no indication that the sea trout population enhancement will go away anytime in the immediate future. Uh, as long as there's a fishery out there, as long as there's interest, uh, the number of recreation anglers seems to be going up. Um, the state is uh, committed uh, in their efforts to help uh, maintain the uh, and conserve the fishery and the resource for the generations to come. And I think what you guys are doing is absolutely great. We've benefited uh, from your guys' help, and I'm sure a lot of people benefited from the information that you give on lures, on techniques. Again, I'll never forget that day that we met. And that goes a long way because 
I'm old and I forget stuff easy. <laughs> Get the hell out of here, man. <laughs> no, nah, man. Well, I, I appreciate Angelus. I, I really do, buddy. And and just all the support that you've had and the friendship, obviously, over the course of the years, man. And so, dude, let's. Uh, I'm going to wrap this puppy up, man. That's a great way to end it. And just uh, we really appreciate it. But I. I really before we do if people wanted to get in touch with you or had questions or for you or your team how could they do that or or find more information about what you guys are doing let's say they're in north carolina and like man how can they get a hold of you or find more information um there's a couple of different ways that they can get a hold of me i have an office number i'll be more than happy to disclose it it is 228-818-8002 um when you call my office, uh, if I'm not there to answer the phone, please leave your email and contact number, and I'll be more than happy to call you back. Uh, we reach out to a lot of uh, other academic institutions as state, other states like Alabama now are interested in a restoration program for spotted sea trout. And, uh, you know, we uh, welcome anybody that's passing by the Gulf Coast Research Lab. If they want to stop by, they can give me a call. And we'll be happy to show them around. We are a biosecure facility. So there are some things that we need to discuss before anybody comes there. But we're basically uh, open for business. If anybody wants to um, venture into the aquaculture science and uh, grow sea trout for consumption, anybody that's ever eaten a sea trout, and I hope many of you have, uh, know to keep some that you keep because you don't know what you're missing out. Um and uh, we're open for anybody that wants to come and see what we do. If you guys want any more information, uh, again, um, science is not here to uh, tell people to stop fishing or don't keep anything you catch. But I'll say it again. Everybody that asks me, my response is always the same. Put some back. Awesome, buddy. Well, thanks again, Angelos. I appreciate it. Uh, for everyone else, hey, if, if you're still listening, uh, thank you uh, first off. And then reminder uh, we'll actually be at the mobile boat show uh in march so come by see us i don't know if you guys will be there but maybe the alabama folks will will be there as well but um and just talk about it and just kind of learn and ask questions and that's kind of what we like to do and that's why we're here at these boat shows just really share the passion and love for speckled trout fishing and so uh it's awesome man so again angelos thanks bud i, I really appreciate it for everyone else that stuck around Thank you uh, again. Tremendous thanks to our podcast sponsors, Mossy Oak Fishing, Miralore, and Texas Custom Lures and Original Custom Corky. Again, without them, we couldn't uh, do this, and so we appreciate them. And then always remember, if you're out there fishing, take what you need, release the rest, tight lines, and God bless. Bye now.